God is in no mood to haggle. And Moses has nowhere to run. And I've been looking forward to the opportunity to say this ever since learning from my friend and former teacher, Ellen Davis, that this is one of the tactical advantages that God has over Moses in this encounter. God tells Moses, take off his shoes. Why? Well, because it's holy ground, says the Lord. Of course it is. An angel of the Lord has appeared. Now a bush is burning without being consumed. Now God is speaking from the bush. It's amazing. Holy, sacred ground. But Davis also suggests that God directs Moses to take off his shoes in order to keep him from escaping. The desert floor is the last place you'd want to run without any protection on your feet. What with the craggy rocks and the spiky cacti and the venomous snakes sunbathing in the pathways. So doffing his shoes is not only Moses' obedient response, but it's always also God's way of saying, you just try and run. I love this clever observation because it describes a common type of encounter between God and human beings. Maybe you're one of the lucky ones, though. You've met God in, in gentle ways, by ember campfires or flickering candlelight. Maybe you've met God in the, the solitude of a, of a hiking trail or a quiet morning devotion. Maybe God hasn't made a, a habit of speaking to you in the windstorms and the infernos and the earthquakes but with a still, small voice. God walks with you and talks with you and tells you you are God's own. Lucky. My own encounters have been more akin to getting grabbed by the back of the collar or by the shoulders and shaken and tossed through the door onto a sidewalk or thrown through the proverbial wall. Generally, the, the aftermaths of my rendezvous with God resemble those old Western movies when they try to wake someone up after he's had a bottle broken over his crown. In my defense, however, this is how things tend to go for characters in the Bible. They're minding their own business. They're doing no harm. They're going to work. They're raising their kids, they're paying their, their taxes, they're being productive citizens, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, going, you know, unaware, completely unaware that God has them in the crosshairs of a new vocation. What happens next? Either God or a divine messenger shows up, always uninvited, and there's nowhere to run or hide. And after God delivers the message, and vanishes, the ones addressed are stunned, and the bystanders are confused, and there are probably burn marks on the lawn around them and wind burn on their faces. This is the kind of encounter that Moses has. Moses has already run and hid. He's now in the witness protection program, shall we say. After a neighbor has confronted him for killing an Egyptian, now, in Moses' defense, the Egyptian was beating one of his family members. However, 
Moses thinks he gets away with it. He thinks no one saw him when he hid the body in the sand. Now Moses has, has moved on. He's calmer now. Uh, he's become a skilled shepherd, a family man, and a good neighbor with no plans to go back to Egypt. Today he's leading his flock on past their usual grazing ground and ends up at Mount Horeb. Moses knows this is a sacred place. But like many well-meaning churchgoers, we can imagine that he traipses onto holy ground without any real expectation that God is actually going to appear. Then God not only appears to Moses in a flaming bush, God corners him. Nowhere to run. As the psalmist says, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Now God has to corner Moses because what he asked Moses to do is terrifying. God is sending Moses into an epic encounter with one of the most powerful people in the world to tell him no longer will you build your unjust economy on the backs of enslaved human beings. And no longer will you profit from the labor of oppressed people. And no longer will you fatten your heart in a day of slaughter. God is sending Moses into sure and certain danger to put his body in the way. No human being accepts a mission like this without hesitating first, to say the least. God does not ask for permission before sending him on a perilous mission. And God does not ask us for permission before sending us likewise. So God immobilizes Moses' feet, we should say, in order to mobilize his courage. Now what, was, what happens here, wouldn't, it would be downright disappointing, really, if it weren't so funny. Moses can't run. You can't hide. But he still tries to wriggle his way out of God's summons. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt? Uh, that's attempt number one. If I go and they ask me who sent me, what am I supposed to say? Attempt number two to wriggle out. And then comes number three. Well, what if they don't believe me? So God actually spends a lot of time with Moses at this point to uh, show him the powers that he's going to give him. In fact, he tells Moses to take a staff and to, to throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground. It turns into a snake. God tells Moses to pick the snake up by the tail. And when he does, he picks it up and it turns into a staff. Still not convinced, perhaps. God asks Moses to stick his hand into his robe and pull it out, and he does, and it's leprous. God says, put it back in your robe. Now pull it out again, and it's strong again. God says, if they won't be convinced even by these kinds of powers, I will direct you to take a cup of water and scoop it out of the Nile and pour it on the ground in front of everyone, and it'll turn into blood. Still, Moses attempts to wriggle out a fourth time. Look, I'm really not a good speaker. 
I was never one for Toastmasters. I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. I have a bit of a stutter. I'm really not the best person for the job. Thanks for asking, God. I appreciate your trust in me, but look, there are just too many obstacles. God says, you know, I've thought about that. Uh, your brother Aaron's pretty eloquent. I'm going to send him along with you. He's going to help you. A question we might fling back at God right now is what can I do now? What can anyone do right now where we are in the situation we're in? We're talking about callings. We're talking about being immobilized before we're being mobilized to go on mission with God. But remember, God's call is coming to this one who's in the wilderness. Moses, like so many of us, either are right now or feel right now. Moses is alone. He is by himself in the wilderness with sheep to keep him company. He is apart from any semblance of the community to which he is accustomed. And though the conditions of his separation are somewhat different than ours, part of the good news is that even now, God nothing can stop God from calling any one of us to join up with God's mission. Specifically, God's liberating mission. It's painful to consider just how long we have been where we are, experiencing what we are, the social distancing. It's hard to imagine how much longer this will go on. But God makes it very plain to Moses that God can show up anywhere, at any time, even in something as ordinary as a bush, and make us able to do what we could never do alone. Never forget that God is extending this call to an individual, yes, but it's for the sake of a suffering community. This is crucial to understanding the divine vocation. If we want to know whether the source of our calling is God, and specifically the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if we want to know that our calling is a calling from the God of Jesus Christ, we need only to ask, to whom are we being sent to serve? Who is God wanting to liberate? To what captives are we being sent to proclaim release? What blind eyes is God opening to see? So I want you to know, and every member of our church and everyone who is encountering the Word of God in this very moment, I want all of you to know that there is potential here for you to be an answer even to Moses' own prayer much later in the book of Numbers when he says, Would that everyone become a prophet? Which means Moses recognizes the potential for there to be a burning bush in the life of every single human being with eyes to see and ears to hear. It will leave you so uncomfortable and maybe even terrified in the moment. And you will feel like when God seizes you with God's word that you have nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. But I am confident that in this moment in time, in our church's life, and in our nature's life, that God is speaking to many more prophets than I have ever discerned before 
and maybe even that you have ever discerned before. But know this, when God begins to show up in so many flaming bushes, speak to us after cornering us, and direct us to prepare for a great mission of liberation, what it also means is that God has to corner us so that God may eventually corner Pharaoh. Part of the good news in all of this is that when God begins to hear the cries of oppressed people, God gets to work responding, and God also gets to work pulling us into the mission. So do you feel cornered right now? Feel like you have nowhere to run even if you wanted to? I want you to interpret that as the good news. Because what that eventually means in Exodus and what it's eventually going to mean in our midst is that Pharaoh and all of Pharaoh's ideologies of domination and humiliation are fast coming to an end. First, we have nowhere to run. Now the good news is coming. Neither will Pharaoh.